Welcome, friends, to issue three of Inside the Blended Workshop. Friends, you've made it. Well, you've made it to the end of September. And to me, that is feeling like a major accomplishment. I'd love to hear from you. What's working in your teaching practice right now? Where do you need help? Within the things that we can control as teachers, and we know that those things are few, (laughs) what would make your life easier right now? Please leave a comment on this month's newsletter or join our Facebook community where we share our questions and our victories with each other. Deep Dive, Language Field Guides as a Blended Learning Answer to Vocabulary Study. In vocabulary instruction, I've tried it all. I've used the school-mandated vocabulary workbook in which students match and true and false and fill in blanks. It didn't work. It's not engaging, and the learning doesn't stick. I've spent hours of class time every week diving deep and engaging students in conversations about the nuances of a variety of vocab words. It didn't work. I don't have multiple class periods each week that I can devote to vocabulary. I have to teach reading and writing. I've spent years doing no explicit vocabulary instruction at all, instead leaning on sage statements like, oh, well, if they have enough volume of independent reading, they'll naturally pick up on oodles of new words. It didn't work either. We all wish we lived in a world where readers picked up the dictionary when they encountered a new word, but most readers I've taught don't. I've never felt good about any of these scenarios. So I've spent the last couple of years developing a method of vocabulary instruction that matches my beliefs about teaching and results in measurable student learning. Language Field Guides. Field guides are books that are created for exploration and discovery. You might pack a field guide of North American birds as you go on a hike so that you can identify the birds you encounter. You might keep your own field guide to document the discoveries you make in your own journeys. When we create language field guides, we are documenting the discoveries we make as we explore words and word parts. Notice how different this framing is versus we will learn the definitions to these words and how to spell them. This difference in frame makes all the difference because when we're exploring words and making discoveries about them, we might find ourselves studying an SAT word, but we might also find ourselves investigating a word we've heard every day of our lives or we might spend time with slang heard in our own neighborhood. Teaching students to make discoveries about words. First, we teach word curiosity. As we read and talk together, ask students to be alert to interesting words. Here are some questions that might help them identify words for their own study. What words are unfamiliar here? For which words do you not know a dictionary definition? What words build connections and patterns in your mind? 
What words are mysterious to you? What words do you love the sound of? What words jump out as special or out of place? Second, we teach word research. We have to explicitly teach and model word research skills. I mistakenly believed that teenagers know how to use a dictionary, and most don't. So I teach short mini lessons on how to get the most information from various internet word tools, including dictionaries. My favorites are vocabulary.com, onelook.com that compares definitions from a variety of dictionaries in one place, and Merriam-Webster. Etymology dictionaries like etymonline.com, historic dictionaries, like Webster's Dictionary 1828.com, and then sites that help us build and see word connections, like Nifty Word and Lexipedia. Finally, we teach connection building. We know that all learning is stickier when learners make connections. So I spend some time modeling for my students how they can connect the word they are studying to other words and concepts they might know. I'm going to be working this fall to create recorded flipped mini lessons to help students with this work. Stay tuned because when I make them, I'll share them with just you. The Choice Word Field Guide Entry. Language field guides are a super flexible tool that can meet the intentions of your teaching. I use them to do so many different kinds of thinking about words in my classroom, from individual word study, to studying roots, prefixes, and suffixes, to studying patterns of diction in whole class texts. In my school, foreign language, math, and history teachers are also all using language field guides to help their students deeply engage with the vocabulary of their discipline. The choice word field guide entry is just one type of entry we create, but here's how it goes. Students choose a word. They use digital tools to explore the word in a variety of ways, and they record their discoveries in a field guide entry which is an awful lot like a one-pager or a sketch note. You can see lots of examples of what these look like if you click on the newsletter in your email. In the newsletter, I'm giving the directions that I give my students, which also includes a rubric, as well as the directions I've modified for elementary classrooms. Assessing choice word field guides. The directions in the document I've shared include a rubric for putting a grade in the gradebook. You'll see that, like most of my rubrics, it's pretty loose. I don't want to lose the magic of go explore words and record what you discover by mandating that each student have a certain number of information pieces or other rigid grading measures. The point is that this isn't about checking boxes. It's about being curious. It's about thinking. It's about delighting in language. And of course, grading isn't assessing, is it? I mean, not completely. What I truly want to know is if a student has learned the word, if they can use it themselves, if they've internalized something about language. 
Here are a few ways to really assess field guide work. A field guide conference. A quick two to three minute chat in which I ask a student to, quote, tell me about your word this week. That's it. We look at their field guide entry together. I listen to their confidence and facility in discussing the word, ask follow-up questions if necessary, and get a quick sense of whether or not this word is one that students now own. Telling the story of a word. Have students pair up or make a quick Flipgrid video to tell the story of their word journey this week. Where did they start? What knowledge did they have going in? What did they learn? What surprised them? What connections did they make? Before students do this for the first time, I model the difference between reading my field guide entry, boring, and telling a story about my word journey. It has a beginning, middle, and end. Important elements are emphasized. Irrelevant details are left out, etc. A field guide reflection. Periodically, we pause to consider what we've retained in our field guides and to consider our own process. I'm including this in the newsletter so you can go grab it and use it immediately with your own students. And finally, a word essay. A more formal approach to this is to ask students to choose one word that really has fascinated them in their field guides and write an essay about it. Don't worry, this is real. Real writers write these. And I've included a couple of mentor texts in the newsletter. Fitting field guides into your classroom rhythm. In the past, I've used small paper notebooks for field guides, something separate from students' usual reading and writing notebook. Believe it or not, students requested this. But in the wild world of 2020, these are going digital using Jamboard. In the newsletter, you can see some of what my 7th and 8th graders made for their first choice word field guide entries of the year using Jamboard. Once students are familiar with the tools and expectations, choice word field guides can work synchronously or asynchronously in bits and pieces throughout the week or in one fell swoop. Here are just a few ways you might slot field guide work into the regular rhythms of your classroom. Spend five minutes at the beginning of each class working on a field guide entry. It's a great warm-up. This would give you about 25 to 30 minutes of vocabulary work spread throughout the week. Or spend half a class period working on a field guide from start to finish, about 30 minutes. Or after having a little practice, seeing some modeling, and receiving feedback, students could do this on their own as homework. That's what my history colleague does. Then give a few minutes of class time for sharing and learning from one another. Y'all, field guides have been the single best innovation in my own classroom in the last few years. I'm really excited for you to try it. Let me know how you use this tool and how you've modified it for your students by leaving a comment in the newsletter. Simplifying read-alouds with a read-aloud matrix. I deeply believe in the power of read-alouds for students of all ages. Even adults benefit from hearing a proficient, fluent, expressive reader make his or her way through a text. 
Read-alouds build community in the room, expose students to new texts they might not otherwise encounter, and they're also a beautiful way to begin or end a class. I use beginning-of-class read-alouds to infuse the curriculum with daily reading when we're in a writing unit. That way, both reading and writing are happening every single day. As an aside, when my class is in a reading unit, we do notebook time writing at the beginning of class to warm up for the exact same reason. I often read short texts for read-alouds, unlike my elementary school colleagues who dig into a novel with their students over the course of multiple weeks. But deciding what to read each day slows me down. Sometimes it leads to flabby, unplanned read-alouds that last too long. I try to keep them to 10-ish minutes. Or read-alouds that lack purpose. Sometimes it slows me down to the point that I just skip the read-aloud altogether. So something that I've quickly realized about this school year, and it's probably true every year, is that I need to find ways to reduce decision fatigue. I need to make fewer decisions every day. To help me do this, I've stolen a page from Kendra Adachi's book. It's not a teaching book. It's just a book for simple, stress-free living. I've linked it in the newsletter. And I've created two read-aloud matrices. I see students four out of five days a week. So here's what my matrix looks like. Option one, the variety pack. Day one, poem. Day two, excerpt of a nonfiction article. Day three, excerpt of fiction, usually young adult, so I can double dip as a book talk. Day four, another poem. Or option two, the deep dive option. Day one, article read through. Day two, article excerpt number one. Day three, article excerpt number two. Day four, strategy practice or discussion. You can head to the newsletter to see these or to grab your own copy that you can edit for yourself. Let's talk about these options. Option one weeks, the variety pack. During option one weeks, I'm trying to expose my students to lots of different kinds of excellent writing. I simply read the text aloud. And some days I invite students to share what they notice about the text for some bonus reading like a writer practice. Again, I keep this to 10 minutes. Option two weeks, the deep dive weeks. On option two weeks, we're doing more of a deep dive, which allows us to do some skill or strategy practice. On the first day, I read the entire article. On days two and three, I reread a smaller excerpt of that same article that will help students apply a reading strategy we've learned in the past. On the fourth day, we practice applying that strategy individually or in small groups or with a partner, or we have a really brief class discussion of the text. How to create your own read aloud matrix. Step one, decide on your purpose. What's important? Introducing students to different kinds of texts or practicing skills or sharing short texts that connect to themes in your whole class unit. Step two, identify the number of days you have to read. Load your matrix chart with a number of days. You may not want to read aloud every day. Maybe you want to do it three days a week or two days a week. 
Maybe you want to do it every Monday. And so your matrix actually spans one month instead of one week. Step three, slot in what you will read each day. There isn't a right or wrong here. Just slot in your reading options so that you no longer have to make daily decisions. Every Monday is a poem. Boom, done. You may shift your matrix as you experience it. No one will know. There are no matrix police. Your matrix serves you, not the other way around. Planning writing units, a planning tool. I made this tool to codify the thinking I do to get from a writing unit concept to a group of mentor texts all the way to a handful of lessons I'm going to teach. I've made a video in the newsletter walking you through this planning tool. I'm including just the audio here. Hey, everybody. I wanted to walk you through this planning tool that I developed last year to help me and to help other teachers um, think through how we can plan a unit of writing study that's centered on genre um, and using mentor texts. So if you are planning a writing workshop unit that's not genre-based, let's say you're doing a process study, so you're doing the process of using a notebook or the process of revision, this tool will not work for that. This is for when you are studying one genre as the whole class and students have choice about how they write within that genre. So the first thing you would do is identify what genre they are writing in. Are they writing op-eds? Are they writing a Sunday routine piece like I shared with you last month? Are they writing the script for a book mini podcast like I'm sharing with you this month? And you would put that here. Then in the mentor texts square, you would put your three to five mentor texts that you're going to use in that unit. We say three to five, um, more than one is what's most important so that students have some choice and they can see a variety of writers' choices. I personally think three is the sweet spot. I rarely go above three or below three, um, but you could link to them here so that you always have those mentor texts at hand. Then this is where I list what I notice about my mentor texts. Um, so for example, um, I noticed that in this mentor text, writers of Sunday routine pieces um, use the interviewee's own words and write in first person. Or writers of um, Sunday routine pieces use catchy um, subject lines or catchy topics to organize their piece throughout. Or they include different pieces of media to connect the reader to the subject of the piece. So I would list what I notice in each of my mentor texts. And here's what I would see. I would see that some things happen in all of the mentor text. Every single Sunday routine piece, for instance, has a picture, a video, or some other piece of media that shows us the subject in his or her natural environment. So because it happens in all of the pieces, that becomes a must of this genre. I know that that is something I have to do. So I would take what I notice here in all of these mentor text noticings, and if it occurs in all or almost all, I put it under must. If it occurs in a couple of them or just one, 
I put it in the might column. And that just means it's a writer's choice, perfectly valid. I would love for my students to do it, but it's not a requirement of writing in this genre. It's an option. And then I'm gonna have a big long list of musts and mights. And so what I'm gonna find out here is I'm gonna look and I might have 20, 30 things bulleted in these two columns. I'm gonna go through and say, okay, what are the five to eight lessons I'm actually going to teach in this unit? That's what I'm going to put down here. These are the lessons I've absolutely decided on. So that's how I get from genre to mentor text to the actual lessons I'm going to teach. I hope this tool is helpful for you um, as you are planning writing units this year. Here are just the steps for using the planning tool. One, choose the genre your students will write in. Two, find three or up to five mentor texts in that genre. Three, study each mentor text. What do you notice about the way it's made? List everything you notice in the appropriate column in the tool. Four, look at all those noticings. If something occurs in most or all of the mentor texts, put that in the must column. Now you know that's a requirement of this genre. If something occurs in one or a few of the mentor texts, put that in the might column. You know that this is a choice that a writer might make in this genre. Number five, from the must and might lists, choose the five and up to eight lessons that you are going to teach in this unit. There should be lessons from both the must and the might side so that we're giving writers options to make choices the way that real writers do. This tool is useful individually, but it can also make a great project for a grade level or department to do together. Mini lessons to go. Here are two process-based mini lessons I recorded for my students. I'm just sending them to you. <laughs> Feel free to use or share or riff on. They should work for a variety of writing units. You can get them in the newsletter. The first is on funneling your topic. So making your topics increasingly narrow to help students zoom in and focus. And the second is a planning tool for students to help them with their writing using Google Slides. Some light housekeeping. The newsletter has gotten too long yet again. Substack will only let me have so many words. So check your inbox next week for a separate post with two writing units in it for you. There's a 6th through 12th grade unit on creating mini book review podcasts, y'all. It's so simple, I promise. No editing, no tech experience needed. And there'll be an elementary unit using the delightful My Map Book by Sarah Finelli. This unit is designed for K through 2. That's where I've taught it before. But I have ideas to scaffold it up for grades 3 through 5. An October Q&A post is coming to your inbox later this month. 
What burning questions do you have about reading and writing workshop these days? Leave a comment below and I'll choose one to explore in depth. Our first live Q&A hangout is coming. It's going to be Sunday, October 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Members of the community will receive a Zoom link a few days before, but you can start submitting questions anytime by leaving a comment below or leaving a question in the Facebook group, or you can just show up to ask a question. If you can't be with us live, it will be recorded and sent out to you later that last week of October. And finally, a little preview. Next month in November, I'm going to do a deep dive on organizing and running online book clubs for both face-to-face and completely virtual classrooms these days. I hope you're finding value in the resources provided to you each month. I hope this is something you look forward to receiving in your inbox. Please share this newsletter with colleagues you think might enjoy it too. In the newsletter, there's a quick button that'll allow you to instantly share inside the blended workshop, or maybe give a one-month gift subscription to a friend you know could use the help. I hope you have a beautiful October. Stay tuned to your inboxes. There'll be more for me soon.